to fully qualify for Second Amendment protection, one had to both uh, be dealing with a situation in which the weapon was one consistent with a militia purpose and had to be used in some reasonable connection to the promotion of a well-regulated militia. The criticism that lawyers are not historians really doesn't hold much water. This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today, we'll discuss competing historical interpretations of the Second Amendment. In 2008, the Supreme Court held that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to possess a firearm rather than a collective right to bear arms connected to military service. The case, District of Columbia v. Heller, attracted attention not just for its holding, but also for the competing versions of originalism adopted by Justice Scalia in the majority and Justice Stevens in dissent. In this episode of Briefly, we explore these approaches and some critiques of Justice Scalia's majority opinion. I'm Megan Kogashal. And I'm Jeremy Rosansky, online editors of the University of Chicago Law Review. We've talked to Robert Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute and lead lawyer for the plaintiff in Heller, Saul Cornell, chair in American history at Fordham University, Nelson Lund, professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, and professors Allison LaCroix and Jason Merchant of the University of Chicago. Professors LaCroix and Merchant are working on a project called Historical Semantics and Legal Interpretation, which aims to give judges and legal scholars the tools to understand how language was used in the past. First, some background on the case from Mr. Levy, lead lawyer for the plaintiff, Dick Heller. Now, Heller was a security guard in Washington, D.C., and a private guard who uh, used a gun during the day on his job, but he couldn't take it home at night because of the D.C.'s uh, ban. The key issue in the case was whether or not the Second Amendment secured an individual right or whether it was a right that was restricted to exercise in the context of militia or a right that applied to the state, and that's the right of the states to arm the members of the militia. What's quite remarkable about the Heller decision, of course, is you have both a majority opinion by Justice Scalia using uh, the so-called new originalism, public meaning originalism, or textualist originalism, and you also have uh, Justice Stevens employing a more traditional intentionalist variant of originalism. That's Professor Cornell. All our guests agreed that there were two crucial takeaways from Heller. First, that the Second Amendment protected an individual right, and second, that the constitutional text should be interpreted by looking to evidence of what it meant at the time it was adopted. Here's Professor Nelson Lund. Well, as a matter of policy, obviously, what was mostly at stake uh, was the future of the ability of legislatures to enact restrictions on firearms, and that has been uh, a, a big uh, policy dispute, very intensely argued on both sides of the issue for a long time. As an interpretive matter, this is really the first time that the Supreme Court has chosen to give uh, a detailed analysis of what it thinks the Second Amendment means. And obviously, the interpretation that came out of the Heller opinion is going to have a big influence on future cases uh, that address new interpretive problems that weren't answered in Heller. Professor Cornell takes a more critical view. The Heller opinion uh, reversed about 70 years of what was the orthodox reading of the courts that the Second Amendment had to be read in light of its uh, preamble, which talked about the need for a well-regulated militia. The standard interpretation since United States versus Miller was that to fully qualify for Second Amendment protection, one had to both uh, be dealing with a situation in which the weapon was one 
consistent with a militia purpose and had to be used in some reasonable connection to the promotion of a well-regulated militia. The attempt to understand constitutional text by asking the question of what it meant when it was enacted is called originalism. It was championed by Justice Scalia. Heller is unique because the majority and dissent each used an originalist approach. Not surprisingly, originalism is controversial. But to Professor Lund, originalism is necessary to apply any legal text. Originalism is uh, attempting to interpret uh, the Constitution or any other law in a way that reflects the understanding of the law by those who made the law. The Constitution is a law, not a suggestion to judges to do whatever they like. But Professor Cornell disagrees. Originalism in its modern incarnation, which emerges during the Reagan years and is probably most closely identified with Judge Bork, uh, originally focused on the intent of the framers. There was some critique of that. Then then the focus switched slightly to sort of the intent of the ratifiers. But of course, as you move from over 30 individuals to over close to 1,000 individuals, the problem of the so-called calculus of intents or how you sum multiple and potentially conflicting intents or the whole notion of collective intent becomes uh, exceedingly complicated. So in order to get around that problem, you had some theorizing. And the notion was that perhaps by looking at so-called public meaning originalism, the meaning uh, that uh, a competent user of English in the 18th century would have construed a text to mean, as Judge Posner and several other prominent conservatives Uh, like uh, Charles Freed have noticed, what Heller really sort of discredits originalism as a a methodology more than it vindicates it, because it just shows that as many clerks as you have to send to the library, you can cook up whatever historical evidence you need to get where you want to go. This is one of the big problems with originalism, is they collapse these very different uh, theoretical and empirical enterprises into a single process when they are very, very different and require different skill sets and... uh, are generally seldom found in the same scholar, although there are some obviously uh, ex- counterexamples of people who really do, kn- do know how to do the history and do understand something about 18th century law. Professor Lund, however, does not believe lawyers must leave interpretation to historians. I think lawyers are perfectly competent uh, if they behave in a responsible way to answer a lot of questions. And I think a lot of these questions that we've been discussing um, about the original meaning of the Second Amendment can be offered, can be answered perfectly well uh, through the kind of historical research that lawyers are capable of doing. One myth, I think, is that only professional historians are competent to tell us what a legal document like this, an old legal document like the Second Amendment means. And the way it's often put is that, well, these professional historians have looked at lots and lots of sources and have then come back with a knowledge that they claim to have about what people must have been thinking about specific legal questions or specific questions about clauses of the Constitution. And when you look at a lot of this literature, it's actually not really evidence of what the Second Amendment means, for example. So, for example, there are historians who have argued that the Second Amendment allows lots of gun regulation because some of the state governments engaged in lots of 
gun regulations or more than the federal government. But of course, what the state governments were doing tells you nothing about what the federal government is allowed to do under the Second Amendment because the Second Amendment didn't apply to the state governments. Justice Scalia acknowledged that originalism often required difficult historical analysis. In his Taft lectures, he called originalism the lesser evil, saying, The main danger in judicial interpretation of the Constitution, or for that matter, in judicial interpretations of any law, is that judges will mistake their own predilections for the law. Scalia continues, Non-originalism, which under one or another formulation invokes fundamental values as the touchstone of constitutionality, plays precisely to this weakness. It is very difficult for a person to discern a difference between those political values that he personally thinks most important and those political values that are fundamental to our society. Originalism does not aggravate the principal weakness of the system, for it establishes a historical criterion that is conceptually quite separate from the preferences of the judge himself. And the principal defect of that approach, that historical research is always difficult and sometimes inconclusive, will, unlike non-originalism, lead to a more moderate rather than a more extreme result. There may be no better illustration of the view that originalism is difficult work than the riddle of the Second Amendment. It reads, A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, another comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed, period. We asked our scholars to explain this puzzle, beginning with that first clause and what this well-regulated militia has to do with the right of the people. One of the strangest things, and there are many strange things about the decision, is the way in which he interprets the preamble. And in the 18th century, of course, the the uh, clause that uh, references a well-regulated militia would have been called a preamble or a proline, not a prefatory clause. That's a modern and somewhat anachronistic uh, labeling of that clause. And if you actually look at the footnotes to justify that, Justice Scalia turns to mid-19th century treatises on statutory interpretation, uh, which, of course, is not what someone interested in how the amendment was read in the 18th century would do. They would look at sources contemporaneous to the framing of the document. And if you look at those sources, for instance, if you look at one of the most popular guides to the law written in America, published actually in 1788, uh, the year the Constitution was adopted, it summarizes the traditional English rules of statutory interpretation and uh, building on those rules says very clearly that the preamble is the key to unlocking the intent of the enactor of the legislation. Here's Professor LaCroix describing the sources Justice Scalia used. Justice Scalia goes through a lot of different um, kind of forms of interpretation. So he does a textual and historical analysis of the clauses of the Second Amendment. So there he looks at Johnson's dictionary, a few other dictionaries, one from 1771 uh, and one from 1828. So none that's exactly when the amendment was drafted. He looks at founding era writings by people like the Anti-Federalists, and the Federalists as well. So they're trying to get a sense of what did people think these terms meant. State constitutional provisions, the drafting history of the Second Amendment, and then 19th century courts interpretations of the Second Amendment. All of them, I think admittedly, by the majority, imperfect. Informed by all these sources, the court and Heller concluded first that the militia was not a specialized group, but all able-bodied men whom Congress under Article I could organize into an effective fighting force. Second, the Second Amendment was added to protect that citizen's militia from having their arms taken away, the fear that motivated the right to bear arms in the English Bill of Rights. 
But Professor Cornell thinks Scalia stressed the operative clause too much and neglected the fuller way in which its meaning is restricted by the first clause. Scalia, uh, first of all, he reads the amendment backwards, which, as Justice Stevens pointed out, was somewhat unprecedented. Uh, Generally speaking, we don't read constitutional texts backwards. I mean, they're not written in Hebrew or Arabic or Yiddish or any of those languages where we read from the opposite side of the page. So how should we read it? The best modern parsing of it would be something like the following. Because a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So basically, uh, to enjoy full Second Amendment protection, a gun had to be of the type consistent with a well-regulated militia and had to be used in the context of some activity that is consistent with the militia. So for instance, training with it would be protected. And a right to self-defense? The right of self-defense is very well established under English common law, and there's not a lot of evidence that it was in danger in the era of the of the founding period. If you think about it, John Adams in the Boston Massacre trial successfully acquits English troops by arguing self-defense. He wasn't arguing the right to bear arms. He was arguing the traditional English law of self-defense. So basically, under English law, you can use whatever property, including firearms that are legally owned, and you can obviously use them consistent with the notion of self-defense that is uh, embodied in English common law. Nelson Lund disagrees with both Professor Cornell and Justice Scalia. The first clause does not define the purpose of the second. The prefatory clause is what's called uh, an ablet of absolute, or some sometimes just an absolute phrase. It grammatically the prefatory clause does not modify or change anything in the operative clause. So the the preface or the prefatory clause says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. This absolute phrase grammatically just doesn't modify or change anything in, uh, in the operative clause. Instead, it sets forth a purpose. Why would any drafter insert a clause that does not modify or change anything about the legally operative phrase? Professor Lund answers this question by looking to the controversy over the militia at the Constitutional Convention. There was something of a tradition in England and then in the colonies of relying primarily upon the militia for national defense, except when wars were uh, declared, in which case uh, the government could raise uh, troops for fighting the wars. And there was a strong sentiment in America at that time that uh, the federal government should have no power to maintain armies during peacetime. At the convention, uh, the delegates decided not to do that because they thought that national security would be imperiled by putting those kinds of restrictions on the federal government because they thought that uh, the militia was not a sufficiently uh, reliable force with which to meet all the emergencies that might arise. So the original Constitution gave the federal government virtually unfettered authority both to raise armies and what was reserved to the states was only the power to uh, train the militia according to federal regulations and to uh, appoint the officers. Now, this resulted in a lot of controversy uh, during the ratification period. Uh, a lot of anti-federalists regarded this as one of the main 
dangers in the new constitution that the federal government would have too much power. When the first Congress uh, set out to adopt what we call the Bill of Rights, they did not want to change uh, the Constitution in any significant way. They thought they were just kind of making clear things that were implicit in the Constitution already. And when it came to the Second Amendment, however, uh, rather than just say uh, that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, they decided to include this prefatory phrase, which um, I believe was mainly intended to kind of help pacify the anti-federalists who had been so concerned about the danger of federal military force. So I think the main reason for putting the uh, prefatory phrase on there is kind of a stop uh, to the anti-federalists, kind of a rhetorical flourished or a rhetorical expression of respect. That leaves the question, of course, of, well, how does, how does this right of individuals to keep and bear arms, which is protected by the operative clause, how in the world would that do anything to preserve a well-regulated militia? Individual rights are not spurs to regulation, ordinarily, one would think. They're obstacles to regulation. And I think the answer uh, basically comes down to the following. When we think of something being well-regulated today, what we usually mean is heavily regulated or more regulated. But, of course, that's not implied by the language at all. And it would not have been... um, necessarily thought of that way during the 18th century. One of the ways in which something can be inappropriately regulated or not well regulated is to be um, regulated too heavily. And if you go back to uh, Article I of the original Constitution, which gives the federal government virtually plenary authority over regulating the militia, what the Second Amendment does is tell the federal government that however you decide to regulate the militia, you may not adopt one particular inappropriate form of regulation, which is infringing on the people's right to keep and bear arms. That, of course, is something the federal government might well have been tempted to do under its Article I powers. We can also look to the phrase, keep and bear arms, for clues into whether the Second Amendment enshrines a right of individuals or collectives, like the militia. The best uh, uh, single source is Blackstone's commentaries, um, where he describes uh, the, uh, the analogous provision in the English Bill of Rights. That provision is much more limited than the Second Amendment. It only protected... Uh, the right of Protestants uh, to keep uh, and bear arms uh, consistent with their condition and, uh, and as allowed by law. And in Blackstone's commentaries, he explains that the purpose of this provision is that it's one of the auxiliary rights uh, that are necessary to protect the fundamental rights of life, liberty, and property, and that it's in the English Bill of Rights in order to uh, allow people to exert their 
natural right of self-defense when the laws are inadequate to protect them from oppression. Robert Levy and his team's inquiry into 18th century sources suggested that keep and bear referred to use by individuals. When we looked at the word um, bear, bear means carry. And many of the early state constitutions referred to uh, bearing arms for self-defense. So obviously it wasn't simply carrying military weapons. It was carrying weapons that would be for uh, personal uh, use. Um, at the time, almost all portable military weapons were in common use. Uh, today, there are a lot of military weapons that are not in common use. And according to Heller, they are not protected because in order to be protected, they must be in common use for lawful purposes. The Heller court agreed that the militia was formed from a pool of men in common use at the time for lawful purposes like self-defense. Hence, the Second Amendment continues to protect a right to arms in common use. But Saul Cornell understands this differently. America has fairly high levels of gun ownership in the 18th century, particularly compared to England. The problem is Americans don't want heavy brown muskets, which can carry a bayonet and are the standard issue of a standing army. Uh, most Americans want either a fowling piece, which is more like a shotgun, or a light um, hunting musket because they want to put food on the table and they want to get rid of critters that are eating their crops. So the notion that somehow all guns are Second Amendment uh, protected undermines the very ideals of the Second Amendment. In fact, if you look at militia statutes, they very expressly say that in most, in most states, um, only one gun enjoys full constitutional protection, your militia weapon. State constitutions, Blackstone, the Federalist Papers, are all excellent sources for determining what the legal community thought was being enacted by the Bill of Rights, but there are many other sources from the period that shine a light on its linguistic conventions. That's where Alison LaCroix and Jason Merchant come in with their project, Historical Semantics and Legal Interpretation. Here's Professor Merchant. So we did actually look at the independent combinatorialness of bear and arms, and we discovered that the, the verb bear is not used with other types of objects. So if you do a Google Books search for, for phrases like bear a rifle, bear a musket, bear a weapon, bear a knife, or bear rifles, bear muskets, bear pistols, bear weapons, either singular or plural, you'll find absolutely no instances of those phrases. So that indicates, that doesn't mean it's impossible, but it indicates that people who were writing at the time didn't find it useful to use bear with any other object other than arms. That is gives us some sense that there this was a fixed expression. And if that's true in some in some probabilistic sense, if that's true, then you might associate with a fixed expression a, a more limited set of meanings. That's typically the way grammaticalization works. Um, and that we could take as evidence that, you know, it's it doesn't have the full combinatorial possibilities that other other verbs do, and um, that must have meant something. We looked at a, a, a narrow range in the Google Books um, from 1760 to 1795 um, and hand-coded every one of those results. And what we found was that the vast majority of cases of bare arms was used in a collective plural. So it was about 65% of the um, instances that we found had collective plural meanings. So those are meanings where we're talking about a group of soldiers acting together, um, a militia use. Um, 
there were, um, as Alice had mentioned, there were actually also individual singular uses. You could find about 18% of those. Now, the way to interpret that result is not to say there's an 18% chance that the Supreme Court was right. <laughs> That's not how we interpret that, um, that result. It's just that the more frequent use of this was in a collective sense with a plural subject. These powerful methods developed by Professor Merchant and Professor LaCroix are remarkably accessible to scholars, law clerks, litigants, and even individual citizens. You know, it's not difficult technically. Uh, even one linguistics course will give you all the tools you need to parse a sentence, uh, to draw the tree. To This is not diagramming sentences. It's just understanding the structures of, of English in a way that's explicit enough to be able to argue about, say, the attachment of a prepositional phrase, which goes into the uh, goes to the interpretation of the recess appointments clause and and lots of other statutory cases where there are scopal ambiguities. These are just very basic concepts. They may sound strange to someone who's never taken linguistics class, but this is like the difference between atoms and molecules. This is stuff you learn in the very first linguistics class you ever take. The other thing I could say, the advice is that if you're building arguments like this. Google has built a wonderful interface. The Ngrams corpus is accessible online and they have a user-friendly interface that doesn't require a PhD in linguistics to use. I would encourage people to go and fool around with it. You know, be careful in interpreting your results, but you'll see the kinds of access to the original text that you have that is just inconceivable for scholars even 20 years ago. It would not have been possible to do this research and it certainly wouldn't have been possible to do it in an afternoon. The Second Amendment is currently contested in two places. In the public square, mass shootings have energized calls to restrict access to certain arms or for certain people. In the courts, Heller's meaning is still at stake, and courts have had to answer whether the Second Amendment prevents states from enacting long waiting periods or enshrines a right to concealed carry. Recently, petitions to the Supreme Court addressing state-level regulations have been denied over the dissent of Justice Thomas. We asked our guests how they think the Second Amendment should apply to some of the proposals in Congress and some of the state-level regulations currently being challenged. So uh, ironically, even as Heller rewrites history in an almost Orwellian way, it simultaneously affirms history is the proper starting point for trying to ascertain which regulations are constitutional. And of course, uh, we, we have since Heller now had some really interesting work on the history of gun regulation, which suggests there's a very robust power to regulate firearms that goes deep into Anglo-American history. It's hard, particularly given the structure of American politics, which is essentially very pro-gun, to imagine any gun regulation that could survive the political process running afoul of Heller's constitutional framework. So just look at some of the ones you're, you've mentioned. So background checks, it's very hard to see how that could possibly pose a uh, Second Amendment challenge. One of the texts that Justice Scalia is so fond of, the Pennsylvania dissent of the minority. So that text actually says you can disarm people who pose a threat to society. And we often forget that the great gun confiscators uh, were not necessarily foreigners, but the American revolutionaries who took guns away from loyalists. They disarmed, uh, you know, a fairly sizable portion of their own population during the American Revolution. So background checks certainly don't pose a problem. Uh, there have always been restrictions on public carry. The only place in the Anglo-American tradition where you see a fairly permissive uh, attitude towards public carry until the modern era is in the slave South. And we might want to ask whether we should be taking our moral and jurisprudential cues from slave-owning judges in the South. So restrictions on carry don't really pose a major problem, with the proviso that they must uh, provide 
uh, an opportunity if there's an, a clear and imminent threat or a good cause to carry. The level of scrutiny to which proposed regulations on the possession of firearms will be subject is still unsettled, but Professor Lund and Mr. Levy agree that they will be subject to some form of heightened review, even if historical analysis is unavailable. Other questions are simply not going to be amenable to an historical analysis for the following reason. The scope of the Second Amendment, which is the question that that arises with respect to every specific gun regulation, almost every specific gun regulation, is one on which we have almost no historical evidence. There were no federal gun regulations uh, for a long time after the Second Amendment was adopted. There were very, very few at the state level at the time or before the Second Amendment was adopted. There was no demand for gun regulation. Uh, none were enacted, so we don't have any public discussions, let alone court decisions, about what, what the right to keep in arms uh, encompassed at the time. And for that reason, I think for many Second Amendment questions that are going to come up now and in the future, um, there's going to have to be some kind of analysis that resembles in substance, if not in form, uh, the tiers of scrutiny analysis that's used uh, in so many other areas of the law, including the First Amendment. I, I think that that kind of analysis should be done in a way that respects the importance of the Second Amendment and that is very skeptical of governmental desires to uh, limit the constitutional right for the same reason that courts for many decades now have uh, respected the importance of the right of free speech, for example, and have been very skeptical of government arguments that free speech should be restricted. The same kind of judicial attitude should be brought to bear on challenges to gun regulations. Uh, what Heller did do was, and McDonald as well, established that the right to keep and bear arms was a fundamental right. So that elevates the level of scrutiny if there are any regulations that are going to intrude upon that uh, right. And we don't know whether it's strict scrutiny or some other uh, intermediate level of scrutiny, but we do know it's some sort of elevated scrutiny in order to justify the regulation. But how will this higher scrutiny play out? I don't see any problem uh, with expansion of background checks. I don't think it's going to do any good. But I don't see any problem with it, provided there's some quid pro quo. I also don't see a huge problem with a, a narrow definition of what constitutes an assault weapon, providing it's not needed for self-defense and not in common use. Uh, I don't see why the ban couldn't be extended to those kinds of weapons. But it would have to be a narrow definition. It can't simply be any semi-automatic weapon that happens to be equipped with a uh, bayonet mount or some other device that has nothing to do with the lethality of the weapon. The focus has to be on the lethality. That's what matters. And I don't see any problem with limiting the capacity of, of magazines to maybe 20 rounds. Uh, again, the practical implications of all of that are going to be de minimis. Obviously, no racial, no other kinds of pernicious categorization. So even raising the age at which you could buy uh, a long gun would probably not pose any serious threat. I think the most important case that's, that, that could come up in the near future 
involves state laws that prevent people from carrying a firearm in public unless they have some exceedingly pressing need to do so. And there are a number of states that basically forbid anybody to carry a firearm in public openly or concealed unless they get a permit from the government, which is extremely difficult to get. And that, it seems to me, essentially reads out of the Constitution the right to bear arms. And I think those laws are clearly unconstitutional, and they should be struck down. Over time, courts will fill in the details of just what right Heller and the Second Amendment protects. But that does not mean that historical research must now build on Heller's premises. The vocation of the historian, just like the lawyer, is ongoing. We're in an interesting situation where the meaning of the Constitution's text and then what the Supreme Court says the Constitution means might be divergent. I think our research suggests, but also historical work um, and, and the work of others, does suggest that the court in Heller gave an overly narrow reading of the Second Amendment. So if you had to say to someone today, does the Second Amendment preclude these certain local regulations? I think you have to distinguish between the Second Amendment and what the court says the Second Amendment means. And we resist that in many instances. We, as people in in the field of law and members of the American public, I think it's good to resist that generally. But I think there are these instances where they, they diverge. And the Constitution, and it's not just the Constitution in some pure sense, but I think the Second Amendment's meaning is different from what the court says the Second Amendment means. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Special thanks to Noel Ottman and the V85 online group. Follow us on Twitter at UchiLRev. Visit us on the web at lawreview.uchicago.edu. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and soundcloud.com slash UchiLRev. <laughs>